0: Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted forever. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Excuse me. So we're still... Doing a few Psalms from 111 to 118 on worship, because we kind of looked at last week that out of Psalm 110, which is a Psalm all about the works of the Messiah, who the Messiah would be, how he'd be a priest and a king who reigns forever, but also the judge who will judge the world and give justice to his people. And then straight out of Psalm 110 comes the first verse of Psalm 111, hallelujah, right? We translate it, praise the Lord, but it's just one word in Hebrew, the word hallelujah, it just means praise Yahweh. It's a, it's a call to worship. We kinda, I kind of said it wasn't just an exclamation like woohoo. No, it's actually a, a phrase that means praise God. It's a, it's a call to worship. And then Psalm 112 starts the same way. Hallelujah. Praise God. And Psalm 113 starts praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And then 17 also starts praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So these are all worship psalms. They're, a psalm, they're psalms that are a call to worship. And it's so important, again, that those flow out of Psalm 110, because it's the person and work of who the Messiah would be that we can then have Christian worship. It's out of his person and work that we praise. So last week, we kind of did Psalm 110 linked to Psalm 111, because you need those together. But this week, Psalm, it's really Psalm 111 linked to Psalm 112. They're all so interlocked with one another. And you'll, you'll notice later, I'll try to point them out more specifically, there are exact repeated phrases from Psalm 111 repeated in Psalm 112, meaning uh, there, there's words from Psalm 111 and phrases that are brought up again in 112, just showing that they are so interlocked. They're supposed to be read together. Also, Psalm 111, I failed to mention this last week, but Psalm 111 and 112 are both acrostic Psalms, which is not the most exciting thing in the world to most people, but it's really exciting to me because that means um, each consecutive line of the Psalms, 111 and 112, start with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. As if you had to write a poem that was the first sentence started with A, second sentence started with B and C. They're doing that with Hebrew through 111 and through 112. So these Psalms, 111 and 112, are as linked as they could possibly be, even though they're two different Psalms. If you look at Psalm 111 verse 10, the last verse of Psalm 111, it says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever." And then if you look at the first verse of Psalm 11:2, the next line, "Praise the Lord, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments." And so you can kind of see there that Psalm 111 ends with this statement of, uh, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." And then 112, what, it's, what 112 is going to be about is the man who fears the Lord. So 112, Psalm 112 is just looking at the last verse of 111 and kind of blowing it up a bit, zooming in on it, expounding it and expanding it, saying that line of blessed is a man who fears the Lord. Psalm 112 is going to tell you the man who fears the Lord, what he looks like. He's going to expand on that quite a bit. So Psalm 110 goes from the person and work of Christ, who the Messiah would be, into the worship of the Lord in Psalm 111. Right. That was last week about how worthy of praise he is because the wondrous deeds he's shown to mankind, how he is worthy of worship. And then 112 zooms in and focuses on the moral character and personal righteousness of the worshiper. Right. That's 112. But what's so fascinating to me is that because these are so interlocked, Psalm 112, what we're looking at today, is still about worship. Even though it's about the moral character and personal faithfulness and obedience of the person who worships the Lord, it's still about worship, right? It's not just a left turn into something totally different. Like as Psalm 111 is about worship, Psalm 112 is about obedience. No, they're deeply connected. Psalm 112 is still a Psalm of worship. You know that because it starts with praise the Lord. This is a psalm of worship. It's a call to worship. And then the psalmist will write about the personal moral qualities and character of this righteous person who fears the Lord. How can can a psalm about obedience also be about worship? Well, of course, those are deeply connected ideas, right? If from Psalm 111, last week, what we looked at was that worship is meant to consume our whole hearts, our whole being. It's not just this compartmentalized thing that's kind of a part of us, but doesn't really consume all of us, and we said, no, worship is meant to consume the whole of our being, not just on Sunday mornings either, but throughout the whole week, then it's no surprise that how we obey and how we live throughout the week affects how we worship. They're deeply connected. The Bible itself makes no attempt to tease apart and separate how we live from how we worship. Actually, it's usually quite the opposite. It's trying to intertwine the two inseparably, trying to connect how we live with how we worship. And, and what's so fascinating is that the only people in the Bible who want to separate obedience from worship and have obedience have nothing to do with how we worship is disobedient Israel. They're the only people who want how they obey to kind of be set aside and ignored so they can go back to worshiping Yahweh. But that's pretty much what the prophets are written to, that Israel wants to go and worship Baal and then turn around and worship God as if nothing ever happened. And God says, no, that's not going to happen. And then Isaiah goes to Israel and says, you think you can just go on worshiping Baal, offering sacrifices to Baal and turn around and worship Yahweh? It doesn't work like that. God knows what you do throughout the weekend, Sunday morning or for them (laughs) on Sabbath, Saturday morning. He knows how you live and that affects how you worship. In Isaiah 58, this is the situation Isaiah is speaking to, 58 verse 2. He says, the Lord says through Isaiah to Israel, who is worshiping Baal, for day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near to them. Yet on the day of their fasting, you do as you please. You exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. You strike each other with wicked fists. So he's poking at them saying, you act eager to know Yahweh. But then when you come to worship and when you fast, you start fist fighting each other. Almost a joke saying how disobedient they're being and thinking that has nothing to do with how they worship. He says, you mistreat your workers, you abuse and oppress others, and then think you can turn around and just worship Yahweh. Or the broader situation, Isaiah, you're worshiping Baal and obeying him and thinking you can just come and worship me. That's not how this works. Our obedience is intimately and inseparably connected to our worship for the Lord, our worship of the Lord. These, these ideas of obedience and worship have always been connected since the beginning of the story of Israel itself. If you remember when God, through Moses, told Pharaoh, sorry, a lot of mediums here, God, told, through Moses, told Pharaoh, actually, through Moses, through Aaron, told Pharaoh, I'm going to bring my people out of Egypt. Do you remember why? He says, so that they may worship me. It wasn't, I want to bring them out just to bring them out of slavery. Of course, that was the point, and that's what they were brought out of. But he says, tell Pharaoh, I'm bringing my people out so that they may worship me. And so he brings these miraculous acts, brings Israel out of slavery, brings them to Mount Sinai, and then hands them the law. (laughs) All these things they have to do, all these commandments they're supposed to keep, how they're supposed to obey. And it's not some sleight of hand trick where he was kind of winking and lying to Pharaoh. Oh, they're just gonna worship me. They'll be right back. That is worship. He brought them to Mount Sinai and gave them the commands so that they may obey and worship him. It was Christ who once said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he also says, you are my friends if you do what I have commanded you. As we obey, that is worship. We talked about not compartmentalizing worship to, within ourselves, right? You don't want to compartmentalize worship within yourself. That worship kind of consumes a part of you, but not all of you. But there's also not letting worship be compartmentalized in regards to time. Right, And I know the classic trope, but it really does mean something. Worship isn't just confined to 10.30 to 11.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Worship is our whole week because our whole week is meant to be spent in obedience to the Lord. Because obedience and worship are intimately connected. You could even say they're two sides of the same coin. They're almost the same thing, like love God and love your neighbor. They're inseparable. So worship's not only what we do on Sunday. It is our whole week spent in obedience. Now, what this means, though, that obedience to the Lord and worship of the Lord are inseparably connected, right? This does not mean that the Lord only accepts worship from perfect people. If that were the case, we should just stop meeting altogether and no one should show up Sunday after Sunday. Or we could sit someone outside and see who does show up and who thinks they're perfect. (laughs) But what this does mean is that repentance is a vital component of worship, it doesn't mean that only perfect people can worship but it means that for us to worship rightly we must be repentant i would even go as far to say worship hinges on repentance you can't be actively holding on to sin and disobeying the lord while also trying to worship the lord that makes no sense that's what israel was trying to do trying to worship baal while also worshiping the lord and the lord sees right through that it's it's you have to drop the sin that we're holding on to in order to turn and worship the Lord. That's why repentance is a turning away from sin toward the Lord. We can't turn toward the Lord without turning away from sin. So worship hinges on repentance. So it should be a, even a natural part of worship. A natural part of worship is repentance. And I thought of Isaiah in the throne room of God in Isaiah 6. He sees the heavenly beings around the throne of God worshiping him, worshiping the Lord. And Isaiah's immediate reaction is, oh my goodness, woe is me. (laughs) He sees the Lord in his glory and participates in the worship of the Lord and immediately falls down and says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He sees the Lord and then turns that back, back in on himself and says, I am not worthy to be here and worship you until I repent. I must repent before I can worship. So repentance is foundational for worshiping the Lord. Which means in the scope of, yes, Sunday mornings, the time we have set aside to worship the Lord as a community on Sunday morning, which is good. That means that Sunday morning starts before Sunday morning or, or Sunday morning certainly starts before 1030 because we approach the Lord already repentant and humble and ready to worship him. But if we walk through the doors holding on to sin, not yet repentant, we're no better than Israel trying to worship God and fast for him while also holding on to Baal worship. Right? So repentance is a foundational part of worship. That's what this psalm is exploring is the, the moral character of this worshiper of the Lord. And in verse one, this, this first notable part of this repentance, righteous man who fears the Lord is this, this two-fold idea of fear. So it says, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So another component of worship is Fear. But notice that it's not just unexplained or undefined fear. He's not just scared of God. It is blessed as a man who fears, who greatly delights in his commandments. It's this twofold feeling of both fear and delight. It's not just this undefined being scared of God, but no, it's fear of the Lord hand in hand with delight in the Lord's commandments. So so to, to fear him, Is it to fear him like an angry, abusive father? It's a reverent obedience to him and a joyful delighting in his commandments. That is probably what what would help most people because people hear the idea of fear the Lord and they may project onto the Lord some bad, abusive father they had and think they're supposed to fear the Lord like they feared their earthly dad who would hurt them or who would abuse them or emotionally manipulate them. But that's not at all what the Bible means when it says fear the Lord. What it means is that the idea of reverent obedience, but also a joyful delight in what he's commanded us to do, that that joyful delight can only be had if we really understand and believe that what the Lord commands us to do is good for us. If if we think the Lord is out to get us, there's no way we can delight in his commandments because we think that they're just trick commandments ready to make sure we don't have a good time. He's just the big the, hes just the big hall monitor making sure no one actually has any fun or runs too fast or does whatever they want. He kind of just puts restrictions on everything. You can't delight in that, a big cosmic hall monitor in the sky. He's not like a, a state patrol on the side of the highway just waiting for you to break the speed limit and then he gets involved in your life. You can't delight in a, a state trooper waiting to give you a speeding ticket. There's no delight in that. But if we know that what he commands us to do eventually and ultimately leads to our flourishing, then we can delight in what he's commanded us to do. Which specifically does not mean, right? That does not mean that when we obey him, it'll never cost us anything, right? Those aren't the same thing, right? Delighting in his commands doesn't mean his commands will never cost us anything. He is the God who has called us to take up our cross and follow him. But the point of that is even commands like take up your cross and follow me That death to yourself leads to your ultimate good and your ultimate flourishing, even though in the present moment, it seems uncomfortable. That's a delight that's bigger than just being happy in the moment. It's an eternal delight that loves and appreciates that God commands us to do what leads to our flourishing. So we can know and delight in his commands like this righteous man from Psalm 112, knowing that what he commands us to do leads to our ultimate good. This, this worshiper in Psalm 12 who fears the Lord in worship, I would say he is godly. Now, that's kind of a junk drawer word now because what does it even mean? By godly, I don't mean simply that the worshiper just does good things, right? Of course, I'm sure he does and we'll see that throughout the psalm. He's generous, he gives to the poor. But by godly, I mean, he, he, you can tell this person in Psalm 112, this righteous man who fears the Lord, begins to share in the very character of God himself. He begins to take character traits from the Lord as his own. Now, this is where it gets kind of fun, and I don't want to lose you here just because I nerd out about the connections of Psalm 111 to 112. So it might help to look at 111 and 112, and I'll point out to you verses to look at because I want to show you where this is actually coming from. In 111.3, right, it's said of the Lord. Remember, one eleven is all about the Lord and His wondrous works. One eleven three says, "Full of splendor and majesty is His work, the Lord, and His righteousness endures forever." In one twelve three, the psalm we're looking at today, it's not said of the Lord but of the righteous worshipper, the man who fears the Lord. Wealth and riches are in his house, and His righteousness endures forever. The exact same phrase. So in 111, it says of the Lord, the Lord's righteousness endures forever. And then in 112, it says of this human, this person, his righteousness endures forever. Who would say of a mere person that their righteousness endures forever? That's something we would certainly say of the Lord, but we probably wouldn't say of each other who is righteous that our righteousness endures forever? That sounds like you're describing God, but that's what 112 is doing, taking attributes to describe God and then describing a righteous man who fears the Lord with them. In 111 verse four, again, it's said of the Lord, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. In 112 verse four, it's said of the person, the man who fears the Lord in worship, Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and merciful and righteous. The same two words used to describe the Lord in one eleven, he's is gracious and merciful, is then used to describe a man in verse one in chapter one twelve, that this person is gracious and merciful. In one eleven, verse four, it says he caused his the said of the Lord, the Lord has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. In 112, verse 6, it's then said of the worshiper, the person, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Have you ever thought of that in terms of a human being, that the righteous man who fears the Lord will be remembered forever? 111 says that about God, but 112 says that about us, if we worship the Lord and fear him. That, that is bizarre how it does that. It's taking these attributes of the Lord in 111 and then putting them on people in 112. It's, now, I don't think it's because after 111, the psalmist just forgot out of, he forgot all the adjectives he could possibly use and just starts repeating the same ones, right? He, he doesn't know what else to describe people as. So we're just repeating this very short list of adjectives he knows. No, what he's trying to show us is that when we worship the Lord in repentance and fear of him and delight in his commandments... God's own character begins to be reflected in us. When we worship Him, the very character of God is reflected through us to the world. And so the psalmist can use the exact same attributes of the Lord in 111 as attributes for us in 112. We, begun, we begin to be like Him. This is a radical idea, I think. I mean, just I study so much history and context and world religions that this is unthinkable, that our God is so deeply invested in us as people that when we worship him, we begin to look and be like him. It's not just some distant God who we worship from afar, like he's up on a mountain and we never really hear from him. And he's not all that invested in us. No, when we worship him, we begin to reflect his character and attributes in our life, not just obeying him from a distance, but when we fear him, he is personally invested in transforming us to be like him. And that's what the incarnation of Christ is, that he is so invested in transforming us to be like him that he will become man like us that we might become like him. If if that involves the very son of God himself becoming man, he'll do that if that involves us becoming like him in every way. Now that's what Paul means when we're transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next in Corinthians, we become like him. So worship is... Inherently transformative. Worship is not just this external conditioning. You you have an input and you get an output. You do this thing and you begin to think this way or so. No, it is not just you begin to do godly things. You become godly. From the inside out, you become godly. Your life is transformed to reflect the very character and nature of God himself. So not only from the first part, not only does how we live affect how we worship the opposite is true as well how we worship will change how we live it transforms us deeply from the inside out so so much so that we cannot walk away from true worship untransformed by worshiping God you cannot be in the throne room of God like Isaiah you cannot be in the holy of holies or at the top of Mount Sinai and just leave unchanged And just leave, oh, that was nice, but I'm gonna go home and whatever, mow the lawn. You cannot, now it's fine if you go home and mow the lawn, but the point is you cannot worship God truly and leave untransformed by worshiping him. If you leave, now that might take a long time. It's not that every Sunday has to be this mountaintop experience and you leave here just on fire for the Lord. We are still humans after all. So you are free to come here sad and down. But the, the, the point is, over time, as we have a life that worships the Lord, both inside the church on Sunday and outside throughout the week, our lives over time will be transformed into his very character. What this means then, if, if we are transformed into his character as we worship, like this worshiper in 112, that means worship is very dangerous. It is dangerous someone who does not want to change. You can put your guard up and refuse to be vulnerable and open in worship and then never transform, but that's not real worship. That's not real intimacy and in relationship with the Lord. That's more of like a pagan God. You go to his temple, you kind of keep yourself distant, you ask him for things, do a few rituals, and it doesn't actually transform and change you. You just want things from Zeus or Athena or whatever. But that's not how it works with our Lord. When we worship him, we are transformed and therefore it is dangerous to worship him if we hold on to our old self and refuse to be transformed or don't want to be transformed. When we worship him, we're transformed to his character. We will be righteous as he is righteous. We will be gracious and merciful as he is gracious and merciful. We will be holy as he is holy, as he says over and over and over throughout the Old Testament and the New. We will become like him. This is, this is easy to preach because it's not my idea. This is, just, this is just preaching different parts of the Bible kind of in one, that it's this idea of we become what we worship. Now, for a broader context, that's actually Jeremiah 10 and then picked up again in Psalm 115, right around the corner. So, so just a few Psalms later, this idea is picked up again and kind of expounded again in this little worship series. So right around the corner of your Bible in Psalm 115, verse 4, God talking about idolatry says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Their idols have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. They have noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Uh, They have feet, but do not walk. And they do not make sound in their throat. Verse 115, verse 8, those who make them idols become like them. And so do all who trust in them. We become like what we worship. If you trust in idolatry, if you trust in idols, you make them the center of your heart and worship them. You will become like them. For example, these idols in 115, a a very tangible idol to an Israelite, you know, a, a statue of a pagan god. He's mocking those statues of pagan gods saying they have ears. Why did you carve ears into wood if they can't hear? It's just, it doesn't make any sense. You carved nose and a mouth and eyes into them, but they can't see or hear or speak. It's, it's ridiculous that you would do such a thing. It's pointless to idolize this thing carved out of wood or stone. But then those who worship this dumb idol, dumb meaning can't think or talk or speak, you become like that idol. Not that you actually lose the ability to speak or hear but you're, or to see, but when you worship an idol who sees nothing, you start to see nothing. Your eyes aren't enlightened to the mercies of God in the world. When you worship a God who cannot speak, you begin to not be able to speak either. Your words will be unhelpful, discouraging to others. You won't lift anyone up. You'll just put people down. Your words become just no better than an idol carved out of wood. Consider a low-hanging fruit example of someone who worships money. Money is notoriously unstable and untrustworthy and unpredictable. If you've lived longer than I have, you know what $5 used to buy you versus what $5 will buy you now. (laughs) At one point in the past five years, $5 could buy you not even a whole gallon of gas, apparently. But now $5 will buy you two gallons of gas, right? Money is so unstable. Money, I mean, if you just look at the stocks, I don't know much about stocks, but I just see the green arrows pointing up and the red arrows pointing down. And they seem to change every day. Money is so unstable. It's day to day. It's value. So although a $5 bill says five, what five even means changes from day to day. A million dollars in one stock one day may be worth a million dollars, but the next day it may be worth way less. It's so unstable and untrustworthy as a foundation to build your life on and to worship. And those who worship money become like it. You worship money and make that the, the center of your heart in worship. You will become unstable and untrustworthy. Your outlook on life will be determined by what your stocks are at, how much money is in your bank account, or how much your retirement fund is valued at. You will become unstable from day to day, just like money is unstable from day to day. We become what we worship from Jeremiah 10 and Psalms. But we also, not just in a bad way, we also transform for good into his character. Look at verse 7 and 8 back in Psalm 112. The heart of this worshiper who fears the Lord and delights in his commandments, it says, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. So this worship then becomes stable. This worshiper becomes stable and steadfast like God. This worshiper, his heart becomes immovable. It becomes strong, not because he's so great, but because he worships a God who is immovable so that he becomes immovable. This worshiper worships the Lord who is not afraid of the future. He's not not surprised by the future and unexpected events. He's stable, our Lord is. And so this worshiper then becomes like him. He becomes stable. His heart is steady. He is not afraid of the future, just like the Lord is not afraid of the future. If we worship a Lord who is stable and steadfast and immovable, unafraid, we too will become this way. In verse nine, verse nine is similar. It's not disconnected. It's not some random comment on his charity. It says, he is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. See, that's not just some random comment. Oh yeah, he's also very charitable. He gives a lot of money to whatever. No, the point is in their context, you don't get anything for giving to the poor. In fact, they probably think it was the opposite. You're helping someone who should really try harder in their mind. You don't get a tax benefit for helping the poor. You are giving money away, parting with it, never to see it again or any benefit from it. Now, in a world like theirs that is so unstable and unpredictable, Right. So much of their lives is determined by how much rain is going to fall. Right. I, don't, I don't have to worry so much about how much rain is going to fall here because we'll just import something from somewhere else. But for them, very agrarian, to give your money away is to say, you believe God is in control of the future. So it's similar to us in the same way. But if we are righteous like this person is, he's unafraid of the future because God is unafraid of the future. And that manifests itself in him giving his money away to the poor because he's not concerned with his own future. He's concerned with someone else's and wants to help them because that is the character and nature of God that he becomes. So to finish, you've probably heard the sentiment, come as you are, referring to worship. And there's good parts of that. There's bad parts of that. I think it can be a little confusing, though. In the sense of come as you are if you're hurting, if you're mourning, if you're sad. You don't always have to come in here on Sunday morning on a mountaintop. You love the Lord so much. Some days is usually is fine to come in down or sad. Come as you are. But that doesn't mean come unrepentant. You can come as you are, but still be repentance. Right? Don't come unrepentant to worship. You can't worship truly that way. And come ready to leave transformed. Come vulnerable and ready to be transformed into God's character. Don't come trying to keep your guard up and holding on to your old self, not wanting worship to touch all of you, just some of you. No, come ready to be transformed. So may we always, as worshipers of the Lord, this righteous person in Psalm 112, may we always come repentant and humble and ready to leave transformed into the Lord's character and worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so, so much for this passage out of Psalms, Lord. I pray that we would worship you truly, Lord, in repentance, in humility. And I pray that we would be, as we do that, I pray that these promises of Psalm 112 and 115 would be in our lives, God. That we would be transformed into your character. That we would be uh, steadfast and immovable, like you are steadfast and immovable. I pray that we would be righteous and holy and merciful and gracious as you are all those things, God. We love you so much in your sons and we pray. Amen.